I've definitely noticed some relationships where I want to be sure that I don't end up in this role. Or I've done the other two where it's like, hey, you know, I'm going to talk to you about a goal that I have or something that I want to change in my life. But I want to be very clear that I don't want you to be my coach for that. Or I don't Mm. want you to be the one who feels like it's your responsibility to nag me or get on me about doing it. This is my thing. I want you to know so you can support me, but I want to be really clear that we're not going to end up in these dynamics. Welcome to the Multi-Amory Podcast. I'm Jace. I'm Emily. And I'm Dedeker. We believe in looking to the future of relationships, not maintaining the status quo of the past. So whether you're monogamous, polyamorous, swinging, casually dating, or if you just do relationships differently, we see you and we're here for you. On this episode of the Multi-Amory Podcast, we are continuing on to part two of our discussion on repeating unhealthy relationship patterns and dating similar personality types. So today we're going to be exploring these ideas further, including discussing some specific considerations for people in non-monogamous relationships, some that make that a little bit easier to manage, some that can make it more difficult, as well as... Finally, providing you with some actionable takeaways and some things that you can do to break some of those unhealthy relationship habits. Alrighty, so let's get into a little bit of a quick recap of what we went through last week. So the overall theme of these two episodes is really to just discuss and kind of percolate on why is it that we repeat unhealthy relationship patterns? And trying to answer the question, do we have a type? Is type a real thing? Are we drawn to the same type of personality when we're choosing to date someone? Studies say yes. The two, the three of us were kind of like, yeah, definitely been there, done that before. Also last week, we talked about repetition compulsion. And just to give that definition again, it is in psychoanalytic theory, an unconscious need to reenact early traumas in the attempt to overcome or master them. Such traumas are repeated in a new situation, symbolic of the repressed prototype. Repetition compulsion acts as resistance to therapeutic change, since the goal of therapy is not to repeat, but to remember the trauma and to see its relation to present behavior. It's also called the compulsion to repeat. We also discussed some examples of unhealthy relationship patterns, things like the four horsemen of the relationship apocalypse, which is contempt, stonewalling, criticism, defensiveness. Talked about lack of empathy, not feeling like you and your partner are on the same team, unhealthy power dynamics, unhealthy communication patterns, feeling a lack of safety in the relationship, as well as several others. And we looked at a study that Emily hinted at a second ago that's looking at determining whether we do have particular personality types that we tend to date again. And it seems to indicate there's good evidence that we do, but there's more research to be done there. And then we also discussed about how trauma or being previously traumatized or previously a survivor of intimate partner violence can be an indicator that someone might enter into another traumatic or violent relationship. And then lastly, we also talked about how attachment theory can play a role in this in helping us to assess our repeating relationship habits. So moving on from all that, from that quick recap, 
I found something in my own research that was called the five relationship patterns. And this kind of reminded me a bit of the demon dance battles, although that was a different thing. This is sort of like what trope you kind of fall into in your relationship patterns in general. And there are five that this person from the scienceofpeople.com go through. It's it's an interesting take sort of on, you know, what our patterns are, where they come from, things like that. These patterns, in my opinion, can apply to monogamous or polyamorous relationships or anything in between, and also can apply to friendships and relationships with work colleagues. So I want both of you and myself, and I think all of you out there as you're listening to this, to try to see if you can recognize any of these within yourself, if you can relate to these patterns. And also maybe it'll help you you know, to think about things that you can learn from those patterns, maybe ways to change them if they're not serving you, stuff like that. So let's move on to the first one. The first one is titled The Caregiver. So you're a person who chooses to have partners or become friends with people who that you want to take care of or to fix or to improve. I've also heard this called like being a fixer or mm -hmm. a repairer or, you know, something like that. And now in this, your partner might actually want to change or they may have no intention or interest in changing. But regardless, you tend to default into this caregiver role. This might become emotionally exhausting and can end up as a kind of one-sided relationship. I often see this play out ending up in a lot of frustration from the person who kind of takes on that caregiver or nurturer role, like frustration at a lack of progress or lack of change from the other person, whether that other person really signed up for that relationship dynamic or not. And then that both the person who's caregiving or their partner may have resentment that then builds up over time on, on either side of this. And this is one that I, this was identified to me pretty early on, like in high school, I think, in dating. Is this something was something that you do? <laughs> that my mom called out that I was doing this. Mm. Oh, wow. Because she felt like my dad had done this in his mm. younger days as well. Oh, wow. Um, and it was one of those things where I was like, huh, it really got me thinking about it. And I did see some of that pattern. It's something that I've very consciously in the many years since then worked to, to not do and to be aware of and not just like fall into that that pattern, I guess. So the next pattern that we're going to look at from the science of people, they have called the alpha. I know we've waxed poetic on the show about our discomfort just with those kind of terms, but this is their term, not ours. <laughs> and the characteristics of the alpha pattern is you default to wanting to be the one in charge in the relationship. And that could be in a friend relationship or with a romantic partner. You may be the chief decision maker. You may tend to drive the habits of the relationship or how it functions in everyday life. Changes in the relationship or big turning points like saying I love you or choosing to cohabitate with somebody are most likely driven by you. You may even dominate conversations. You may be the one to either dictate or strongly suggest the way that your partners live and act or date if you're non-monogamous. And of course, as we can probably guess, these sort of habits can wreak havoc on a relationship in a variety of ways. Because for a lot of people, this can land as really controlling. I think it's interesting when you are the person who 
may tend to take a back seat in some relationship dynamics. I know that I've been there. I definitely have been a caregiver as well. And I feel like I've been somebody who tends to let people dictate certain parts of the relationship more than others. Maybe I'm if the yeah what the the alpha or the dominant versus like the submissive and less submissive in in subdom sense but more like oh i'm fine with you know just going with the flow and letting someone do whatever they want but it does it potentially cause a couple to breed resentment over time and i've found that to be true for myself for sure that's something worth thinking about with all of these is that these are from one point of view but all of these have a counterpart Definitely. It may or may not be kind of, uh, I don't want to say complicit, because it, again, it kind of sounds like we're causing it to happen. But, you know, there is another part to these, right? That maybe the other person is defaulting into that role, even if they don't really want that from their partner, maybe they can fall into some patterns on the other side, too. So it is just worth, with all these kind of thinking about that, that it's it's not all just one-sided, but that there is this interesting dynamic that can vary depending on what different personalities enter into this relationship. The next one is called The Parent. (laughs) Now, Now this we talked about just a touch in the last episode, but how sitcoms tend to really play up this role, I think, between heterosexual couples. A lot of just and, like mom is mom is the endless parent to both the yes, kids and the husband. Yeah, exactly. And even right. parenting the husband, like it, I've seen it also. I feel like in self help help books as well that oh, you know, you're parenting your significant other to a degree, or your significant other is just like another child in the relationship. But again, yeah, it is this idea that you get into relationships where you may default to being the parent. And then you see your partner as the child. They pointed out this person who created this article said that maybe you were the oldest in a family, for instance, and you you took on that, you know, co-parenting role or that additional parent role in your childhood and your upbringing. And so you do it in your romantic life later on as well. So you may do things like taking on the planning parts of the relationship. You may make sure that your partner is taken care of at all times. Or on the flip side, you may resort to nagging or chastising if something isn't done in the way that you want to, that you want it to be done. You also may pride yourself in certain situations on being a role model for your friends or colleagues. And this can backfire if it isn't something that they want or need. I thought that that was interesting, that kind of sense of this, this part of this being pointed out by the person that created this article, because you you don't often think about role models as like being necessarily a parent. But I think that that you that this is sort of potentially negative if you see yourself as a role model, but others don't really request that or need it in the moment. And it's like, okay, are you putting yourself on a pedestal or are you looking down upon others? Stuff like that. It's mm-hmm. kind of interesting. Are you just being bossy that way? Or yeah. Or like, why do they want us to do it their way? It's not as good. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. It is a complicated dynamic. Yeah. And, and like a lot of those old-fashioned tropes say, being a parent to your partner is not a very sexy thing. And so that can cause a lot of strain in the relationship. You know, that's you don't want to be dating your parent, for instance, 
even though mm-hmm. Freud might think otherwise. But yes, <laughs> right. yeah. But it, that that may not be like a sexy thing if you feel as though you know you can't ever do anything right in the household, essentially because mm-hmm. you know your partner doesn't like the way that you're doing stuff. I find it's a dynamic that's not sexy on either side. Like no one that's wants to true. feel, no one likes to feel parented by their partner in this way. And yeah. also like people no one don't likes tend to, to do the parenting. Yeah. Feeling like they're parenting their partner either. Mm-hmm. Right. And we do want to make a clear distinction between some kind of, you know, role play or having these sure. kinds of dynamics very consciously in a relationship versus this is more about toxic Unconscious. patterns that can show up and that are not, negotiated not talked about or based in more of an unhealthy dynamic so just just to kind of throw that out there with with some of these it's like well yeah these things could also be fun you know like with the alpha it's like well one person's making the decisions and the other's accepting and it's like well that could be a fun dynamic when it's negotiated intentionally you know between people who understand how to do that so anyway just to just to throw that out there because it keeps i keep thinking about those kinds of intentional dynamics the next one on this list uh, they called the codependent. So uh, they describe it as this role might result in you and your partner giving up a lot of your personal autonomy and really heavily entwining your relationships and kind of letting go of your own identity in favor of this identity of a couple or or even larger than a couple potentially. And that has some nice sides of being this great support system for each other, but it can also result in isolation, causing you to pull away from other relationships or maybe move away from other pursuits that are valuable to you as a person, but you kind of let go of and forget about and can end up resenting that or regretting that later on. Also potentially becoming totally reliant on each other where it's even hard to function in society outside of that identity. And I know that sounds very extreme to say, but if you think about relationships where you've been more codependent, you can kind of see some of that of like, I just don't quite know how to function in the world without this identity or without always making something tie back to that relationship or, you know, I can't make decisions without that person or or any number of things like that. I think so many people, sorry, I think that so many people too in regular sort of monogamy centric feelings like tropes i guess and advice out there a lot of people do kind of tell you okay your relationship is the end all be all and and it sort of makes us feel as though we need to have our identity tied to our relationships which is interesting even though i think that it can breed a lot of these unhealthy patterns because we have that so like intrinsically tied to who we are in relationships and and what they represent for us Yeah. And that, you know, we've talked before about this, but you know, that there's that balance between you can be too withdrawn and not, you know, open yourself up to connecting and creating any kind of shared identity with a partner. And that's not good, but also completely letting your own identity go or, or letting it go too much in favor of this is also unhealthy. And that another thing about this one is that it's not only difficult for each of you at times, like, you know, eventually you'll start to pay the price for kind of losing that autonomy and that identity, but also can be really hard for other people in your life. Yeah. And that's something to realize too, that, you know, your friends who you've pulled away from or people who it feels like you can never just give them an answer right away, you've always got to go and check with this other person can be frustrating for them. And that then if we bring in something like non-monogamy or even without it, 
this can also bring up really extreme jealousy because if my whole identity is tied to this person, any threat to that is a threat to my own identity and not just to this relationship so that the stakes get raised even higher. And then the fifth relationship pattern that we're looking at here is called the push-pull. So just like it says, it may be very volatile, may have a lot of ups and downs. Partners may break up and get back together many times throughout the course of the relationship. Could be an on-again, off-again relationship. This could be an extension of some ongoing pursuit and withdrawal patterns that are going on. So there could be one person who is generally the pursuer while the other one is the withdrawer, or you could both switch back and forth. And if the relationship does end, there's always this floating possibility that it may start back up again. You know, there may be some really fuzzy or non-existent boundaries around still contacting each other or actually letting go of the relationship fully. There can be a lot of, I don't know, I guess the classic, like, let's have breakup sex or oh God, just one last that. time <laughs> for good measure. You know, like that, all these things that kind of pull you back into orbit with, with one the relationship. One last time for good measure. I love it. Yes. <laughs> True. It's, it's interesting too, because I think that with some of these others, we've talked about like the parenting one or, or the caregiver or even the alpha we will see these patterns show up in our in our media often as like we don't love this everyone's kind of hating it a little bit but that's life and that's just how it goes and then on the other hand we have this push pull kind of feels and sexy even the code yeah we, we make it very sexy and like oh yeah. it's funny because all of these we, we could take them and like slap it like sure like a, a kinky <laughs> outfit on it and like really dial up the volume and it could be real hot again if it's like consensually negotiated yeah right and like thoughtfully done yeah exactly <laughs> but yeah but this one the push-pull we really romanticize in our mm -hmm. romantic comedies and stuff like that of like that that will they won't they push-pull we're jerks to each other and then we're into each other and then we're jerks again and then it's like you know pride and prejudice 100 oh, yeah. percent. yes yeah well i wanted to yeah kind of point out and you did already a little bit just just that I think if you're looking at any of these and you realize that you fall into one pretty heavily, it's important to take ownership on both sides that we exist in these dynamics, you know, on either end. And I think that there are moments where we may feel like, fuck, like my partner, you know, causes me to be such a parent around him or whatever or around them. Hmm. And yet, on the same end, you may be choosing to enter into to a dynamic, even if it's subconsciously, that causes that sort of, you know, cyclical pattern to occur. And I think that that's where we need to be looking more critically at the why behind these things. What is it that is causing us to get into these patterns and to continue to perpetuate them? And understand that, like, we have to take ownership and are part of them, not just blaming our partners for, you know, putting us on the track of this pattern happening over and over again. Or, oh, I always get into relationships with such childish people, for example. No, okay, well, where where is your part of that equation? Mm -hmm. Like, what do you, how how is this serving you and why do you continue to get into this type of dynamic? And if we're assuming that... This is a relationship that has, you know, some real mutual care underlying it and that, you know, there is love and affection and care there. Knowing that can help break you out 
of that pattern of then building resentment about this thing and can switch you more into, hey, let's both do something to change this. Whereas kind of yeah. being unaware of it, you could end up with this resentment and frustration in a relationship that, that otherwise, like there is a lot of care there. That it's, you know, that it's not just this is an abusive, terrible relationship, but maybe we've just fallen into some patterns that we can change. And we'll, we'll get into that later in the episode. But I did just want to mention that there because I could see this being another one of those things of like, don't put me in a box and tell me that if I do this thing, it's always bad. It's like, well, no, it's more just by becoming aware of it. It's like, oh, look, I have a place to start now. I have something to start thinking about. Like with my mom pointing out the like being a fixer thing to me. Yeah. In high school, I was like, oof, okay, right, let me think about this, let me explore this. And now it's something I'm super aware of in, in my friends' relationships as well, that I'm, I'm kind of very attuned to seeing that kind of behavior. I feel like I've gone into like every single one of them at some point in my life. What about you two? Or do you really Oh, I was going like to say, I think I've one. got a royal flush. Like I'm oh. in even beyond yeah. this list of unhealthy relationship patterns. I, yeah. I'm, you know, I like the variety pack myself. Got it. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah. Uh, but okay. But if I had to pick one that I tend to go to, oh, gosh, ugh, ugh. see, I feel a little scared to nerd to, to answer this because I feel like if I answer it wrong, you two are going to laugh at me for my lack of self-awareness. <laughs> oh, it's fine. It, I'm sure it, you've done all of them at some point, but which... The ones that stand out to me the most are, tend to be doing the parent or the the caregiver thing. Mm -hmm. Maybe with a little mm -hmm. bit of the alpha sprinkled in there sometimes. Mm -hmm. Just to give you that one for, for fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I... Yeah, I think there's a lot of overlap between those those three in these mm. descriptions too, right? It's interesting now that I'm thinking about it, I've definitely noticed some relationships where I have felt like the other person in the relationship is kind of w wanting me to fit into one of these or kind of whether they were doing it consciously or not, wanting me to kind of take some of these roles and having to very intentionally you know, with, with words, like have conversations about like, I want to be sure that I don't end up in this role or I've done the other two where it's like, Hey, you know, I'm going to talk to you about a goal that I have or something that I want to change in my life. But I want to be very clear that I don't want you to be my coach for that. Or I don't mm. want you to be the one who feels like it's your responsibility to nag me or get on me about doing it. This is my thing. I want you to know so you can support me, but I want to be really clear that we're not going to end up in these dynamics. I've, that's, I've, a cool that's a conversation I've had many it. times yeah. on either side of like, let's negotiate that of like how much encouragement, you know, how do we, let's revisit this and see like, should I encourage a little bit more? Should I back off? But that it's a collaborative, intentional, like communicated process. I think that's a great way to approach things. Yeah. Alrighty. Well, we are going to continue talking about considerations for those non-monogamous relationships regarding all of these unhealthy relationship patterns, and then finally get into some actionable takeaways for all y'all. But first, we are going to discuss some ways that you can support our show and continue to bring it to you for free. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and 
and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile, and the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time, there's Granger, offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, clickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger for the ones who get it done. Alrighty, we're going to talk about considerations for those in non-monogamous relationships when it comes to repeating unhealthy relationship patterns. Because, you know, it gets more dicey, it gets more challenging when there's even more people involved in all of this. And it really can be difficult to watch our partners date people that clearly aren't good for them. I think in friendship scenarios, too, and a lot, actually a lot of these Mm -hmm. articles talked about the fact that if you're trying to stop dating toxic people or dating the same type that isn't good for you over and over again, it said, listen to your friends, like listen to their assessments of things because they're a little bit more objective than you can be. And I think that that is not bad advice. However, it may be more challenging when you get multiple romantic and people involved because you may not want your romantic partner telling you not to date someone that may feel kind of shitty and kind of not like something you want to get into. So I think this is a really good opportunity to discuss with your partners about how much you want to be entwined in the other person's relationship. You know, in what kind of things are you going to discuss? Is it okay for the two of you to vent to one another about the relationships that you're in? You know, stuff like that. I think that's a really great communication to have with your partner just fairly early on because so many of us and I know that I've been there have gotten into scenarios where I may vent to another partner about a different partner about their metamor and then they feel like the go-between they feel like they're in the middle of it in some way and it gets really frustrating and really challenging for them yeah so you may decide that you really value your partner's opinion and you want them to help you identify some unhealthy patterns that you might be into. Or you might decide that we want to keep this separate and I I don't want you to be the one who's weighing in on that. But that's definitely a conversation worth having and revisiting, you know, reconsidering as you go along. Also understand that regardless of how separate or entwined these various relationships are, any conflict that you have in any of them does have an effect on the others, right? Because it has an effect on you and that is going to affect the others, sometimes more, sometimes less, again, depending how entwined those are and how thoroughly you you work at separating those. But to, to pretend that they don't affect each other is just not true. Mm-hmm. So recognizing that it can be difficult for your other partners to, you know, kind of take steps to ensure that their quality time isn't spent venting about other partners. Kind of like you were saying, Emily, it's that every now and then maybe that's okay and maybe we want to be there to support, but we also want to take steps to make sure that we're not just, that's what all our time is Sitting down and crying about your other partner like the second you hang out with them. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Right, right. And uh, yeah, and there have been times where I've been very guilty of this. Oh, for sure, me too. 
Yeah. And it's a bummer and it's difficult. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a real challenge. But there's some special benefits that non-monogamy can bring along with it for being able to get some more information about yourself and how you tick. I mean, for instance, if you notice yourself having really similar issues coming up in multiple relationships, that could be an opportunity to consider, might this be related to me in some way? Might this be related to some of my internal patterns or my attachment style or what it is that I'm looking for? That's not to say that it's all your fault necessarily, but it's like this is just yet another inventory item on the list that you can look at and investigate. And again, you know, in practicing non-monogamy, it gives you additional opportunities to practice in relationship and to practice new relationship patterns as well. And it also gives you the option to connect with and build relationships with people who are maybe not your normal personality type, for instance, and could give you the opportunity to gain new perspectives. I know for myself, it's also been really helpful, sometimes for clarifying that maybe something isn't necessarily my own baggage or an internal pattern. If I notice that like, oh, things are going actually great in relationships A and B, but then something's really going haywire in C, now, that doesn't mean I have free license to say, oh, it's all C's fault. Clearly, they're the bad <laughs> apple of the bunch. But it, I don't know, it just helps to act as a little bit of a litmus test to help you get to the bottom of, of what's really going to be the most effective thing to focus on in order for my relationships to feel better. Absolutely. I think that it can also sort of bring to light the, some trends that you might have of I'm, I'm tending to date people that are very similar in this particular way. If you're dating them all at the same time, that might be more obvious, if not to you, then maybe to your friends who are like, huh, that's funny that you're dating another VFX artist that you might not have noticed if you had dated them in sequence, right? Mm. That, that that might jump out more. And I, I know I used VFX artists as more of a silly example, but this could also be something more serious of like, you know, falling into some of those patterns that we talked about before of it's interesting. You keep like you have multiple partners and it seems like you're kind of being a little bit of a parent to all of them. That's an interesting observation that, that maybe a friend might notice that you wouldn't or that you start to see, oh, I'm feeling this same sort of exhaustion in all these. Or I started a new relationship and I see myself starting to move it toward this similar dynamic of what I've got in my other relationships. It kind of just gives you more touch points to to look at and to kind of compare and see patterns, which is actually really interesting and can be really helpful if you're aware of that. Yeah, my partner pointed out fairly recently something that I had said like way back at the beginning of a relationship that I really like being someone who friends and partners and other people can rely on for emotional support. But I think that like sometimes I take that a little bit to like the extreme and mm -hmm. And I do it while sacrificing my own needs in that moment. And it does, it can create that one-sidedness. And I appreciate the fact that he pointed it out because, yeah, I think that that, that does come up from time to time and, and causes these one-sided, not, not really healthy relationships. And that is definitely something to look, look at overall and, and question why that's happening. Yeah. And now we're going to move on to talking about some actionable takeaways, some tips and some advice, some things that you can do if you want to break some of these patterns. We've put this into two main sections. The first one is if you're worried about dating the same type over and over again, some things you might be able to do to change that up. And then the second is if you notice you're falling into the same patterns. 
in your relationships, some exercises and things that you can do to start to change that and break out of those. All right. So the first section is if you're worried about dating the same toxic type over and over again, here's some ways to get out of that habit. A lot of these are journaling exercises, which I like because, again, that sort of gets you out of your head and onto the page and allows you to sort of look at things, hopefully a little bit objectively and go back to it if you want and, you know, see how things change over time. But the first is to think about the following and write down the answers in a journal or you know, on a note-taking app, something like that. Imagine your ideal relationship. What would that look like? How would you resolve disagreements? How would you be your best self in this relationship? So answer those questions in your journal. Also ask yourself, what would this relationship feel like? So focusing less on, you know, what that person looks like, or whether they're a VFX artist or not, you know, what, what they do for a living, but instead focusing on how do you feel in that relationship, right? What is the feeling of that relationship? So with these two journal exercises we've mentioned so far, the one that, that Emily talked about and the one that I just mentioned, the point of those is just to get you thinking about, you know, if I were to really brainstorm what I want a relationship to feel like or look like, you know, what is that? because it can give you maybe something different to focus on instead of falling into, well, I'm just kind of doing the same old thing, right? I'm just following my, my habits, my patterns, what's familiar, but instead gets you thinking about what it is you want. And maybe you'll adjust some of your behaviors in terms of, you know, who you're looking for and what you find attractive. If you have that in mind, instead of just allowing yourself to default to whatever's comfortable. Now, another kind of different approach to this is to, if you're worried that you're dating someone who's like your parents, or maybe you're reliving some stuff from your childhood, one exercise you could try is you make a list and you have a column for each of your parents. You know, maybe if you're like me, you'd have like several columns on a, yeah, on a, on a parents, right? millions of parents. Yeah. <laughs> right. But you know, whoever you're, you're concerned may be involved in this, but make a column for each parent or just one parent that affected you the most, or maybe other caregivers or whatever it is, and then also your partner, and, you know, put them on that list. Maybe this is a past partner, maybe it's a current partner, whatever it is. And then start to write down what traits and behaviors does your partner share with all of your parents, with some of your parents, caregivers, whoever it is. And then repeat this exercise with other past partners or other partners that you have if you're non-monogamous, and look for what are these commonalities? What are the things they have in common? And again, the point of this is not to say, aha, that's the problem, but instead to just bring more awareness to these patterns so that you're more able to notice, oh, look, that's there. And not all these are bad, right? You might notice some that's like, this is a good trait, and I also see this in my partners. That's cool, but that's good to be aware of that I learned from a young age that that's a trait that I should be looking for. But then mm, this one's not as good. And I'm maybe also looking for that. Well, what if I could get that good one and, and less of this one that I don't like as much, but just sort of getting some awareness and noticing those things in a way you might not when you're just thinking about it without writing it down. I think it might be interesting to do this also with yourself, like put yourself on one side and your parents on others and kind of oh, see wow. like, which traits you yeah you exhibit (laughs) that are similar to their traits and if that's something that you like in yourself or that's something that you want to change 
Well, and that one the, might be too scary. I don't know. No, gotta... I feel like I'm constantly doing that exercise in my head already, and I hate it. <laughs> well, <laughs> I think it is interesting because, again, it may inform the reasoning behind why it is that you gravitate towards certain people or not. It may be like, no, okay, I think it's a good exercise. Yeah. You know, my mother tended to date these types of people. Now I'm also tending to date these types of people. I wonder mm. if it has anything to do with these personality traits that are similar to one another, things like that. These I mean, are all that's... just, you know, e- exploratory exercises. For sure. Now, I was just going to say that's an interesting question, too, to, to explore. Is it that I think I might be dating people similar to one of my parents or both of my parents? Or is it that I'm dating people similar to the people that my parent dated? Yeah. Maybe that has to do with some values they taught me boy. about what one should look for in a relationship. So boy, there's a lot to, a lot a to, lot unpack, to unpack here. here. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'm really curious if any of you do this out there, let us know how it goes, especially in our patron groups and stuff like that. Cause yeah, <laughs> there is a lot to unpack there. Well, since there can be a lot to unpack, this is also a good arena to maybe bring in a professional. So specifically things like CBT, cognitive behavioral therapy, or DBT, dialectical behavioral therapy, they're modalities that are specifically focused on reshaping thought patterns, reshaping beliefs that you may have about the kind of relationship you're supposed to have or that you deserve to have. You know, those things that can lead to unhealthy behaviors and choices that are maybe not so great. And so this is a fantastic topic to dive into with a therapist. Yeah. And in addition to that, you can also incorporate self-regulation tools, you know, meditation, breathing exercises, you know, mindfulness practices, anything that gets you to switch on that almost like that light bulb of awareness or that searchlight of awareness of, of just training it in on yourself of getting curious about how it is that you tick and maybe quieting your day-to-day default, just kind of zoning out, going about your day and really getting curious about actually what's going on here. What comes up in me? Like when I'm seeking partners or when I'm in my partnership right now, like what are the things that gets triggered for me or what are the things that feel good for me? Just bringing in that curiosity can really invite in a lot of insight. And it can also aid you in incorporating things like self-compassion and letting yourself off the hook a little bit. And of course, we have to say that if you're realizing, oh, I'm in a relationship that's really unhealthy, maybe I have these patterns that are playing out, or I've realized that I've ended up with the same toxic type of person once more, exit the relationship if it's not working for you anymore. You know, it's okay to break up. Also choose to take steps to change relationship patterns. And that's what we're going to talk about now. Alrighty. So these are five steps to change relationship patterns. And we have some multi-amory advice sprinkled in along with this thing from love at firstfight.com. The steps are from them. All the other stuff is from us. I wanted to like mold the two together and give you some multi-emory back catalog stuff along with, you know, some of our tools that we love to use in our own daily lives. So step one is notice what triggers your negative relationship pattern. And really, there's just a cornucopia of things out there that trigger or that cause us to enter into unhealthy relationships or unhealthy patterns, make us upset. And make us wounded, you know, make us feel pain, things like that. 
And it's important to really try to gain an awareness of all of those reasons and also of how your body feels. I love this idea. You've talked about this a lot, Dedeker. Like, how does it feel in my body when my partner says something that's annoying or that's, you know, painful? What is that? You know, why why am I feeling this thing? So sit with that feeling and then ask yourself if a similar situation in the past has caused you the same feeling. Try to go back in time and look at, you know, your body sensation and try to recall if it happened maybe with an experience with your family of origin or something else in your past, an old boyfriend, things like that, you know, any of the above. And that history may really give you insight into why this pattern began in the first place. The second step is discover how you invite conflict. So this we've, you know, we've touched on this a little bit before. And I want to maybe even for this exercise, when we're talking about changing patterns in an existing relationship, to move away from how do you personally invite conflict and maybe how do you as a couple invite conflict? Mm. You know, how do you fall into some patterns that lead you down a road into conflict? And one thing that we love to talk about for this type of thing is microscripts. So basically, if you start to notice that there's a particular conflict pattern that you go into, you know, we, someone does this sort of, you know, someone reacts in this way while they're working and they get interrupted by their partner and then we have a fight about it. Or, you know, the person reacts. Fights. Mm-hmm. Right. These kind of nothing fights or, or that kind of, we've, we've learned like, okay, yeah, gosh, we've done this again. And maybe we don't notice it while we're in the middle of it, but we've noticed, okay, there's a pattern here. Where a microscript comes in is you work on getting better at identifying where do we, where's like the earliest point that we can notice we're starting to go down that road. And that's where we're going to insert something else, a different pattern. A, and that's the microscript. It's like a weird thing that we're going to say, uh, a little dance that we do. You're just something to kind of short circuit that neural pathway, change our thinking about certain situations, maybe turn something that would lead to a fight into something silly. And even if you're not feeling it, just the symbolicness of doing that shows like, I acknowledge I don't want to go down this road, right? I don't want us to just continue down here. This is something Dedeker and I use tons of this. You know, anytime we start notice, hey, you know what? We've had a conflict about this thing twice now. Even just that, it's like two or three times now. Like even if it was a minor conflict, we'll say, okay, how's something that we could change that pattern? What's a microscript? we could enter into here. You know, what if there's just a funny term that we come up with to describe this instead of saying, you know, I'm mad about the fact that you put the towels back in a way that I didn't like in the linen closet. You know, it's like, oh, I'm about to have a limit break, like a Final Fantasy character. And it's like, even though the meaning's the same, there's just that little bit of silliness to it that allows us to talk about it and kind of distance ourselves a little bit from the emotions that we're having during that conversation. Makes a huge difference. And then something like radar, having a regular relationship check-in, is a great time to start noticing those. Is, you know, that's when you can come together and go, huh, you know, in this last month, we twice had a fight about the linen closet. <laughs> what's, what's a microscript that we could do? Or what's an action that we could take to change that? So step three is to bring in positive intention. So 
I know this can be really hard. We do talk quite a bit on the show about how important it is to be able to assume that your partner has positive intentions rather than negative or harmful ones when they're engaging in conversation. And this is something that's a little bit hard to control. I mean, the Gottman Institute studies this quite a bit. You know, they talk about negative sentiment override and positive sentiment override. And they find that basically if there's good friendship, a good sense of friendship in your relationship, chances are high that you're going to naturally be able to give your partner the benefit of the doubt or assume that they have positive intentions. But if something's going wrong in the friendship, there isn't a strong sense of friendship in your relationship, chances are high that you're going to assume they have negative intentions, you know, and that you're going to expect criticism from them or negativity from them or things like that. But it's important to pay attention to this because over time, the more that you stay in that state of negative sentiment override, it breeds resentment. It means that even if your partner does something good or something kind or tries to come to you and repair or be compassionate, that you may still have this filter on of assuming they have some sort of bad intention or secret agenda that means that you lose that momentum of being able to even receive that repair from your partner. So we recommend going back to specifically our repair shop episode, episode 234, utilizing those steps to repair after conflict and also um, figure out how to prevent a particular pattern from happening again. This is also a great time to, you know, use your good communications tools like I statements or things like clean talk or NVC. Step four is to name the pattern. That kind of feels a little bit like a microscript thing as well. But mm-hmm. additionally, we talked about this a little bit on our Demon Dance Battles episode, which was 275, where we discussed Sue Johnson and specific patterns that people tend to fall into when they're fighting. So we did also talk briefly about pursuit and withdrawal patterns and how that happens sometimes and how you may recognize if you or your partner is the one doing the pursuing or the one doing the withdrawing or if you, you know, go back and forth on that. Basically, once you're able to figure out your specific pattern, put a name to it, recognize when it happens, the thing that sort of causes the event to occur, then you'll be able to stop the pattern in its tracks the next time you recognize that it's happening. It was interesting. I was just reading the other day about colors and that we're better at recalling certain colors if we have names for them. Whereas if like you don't have a name for that color that's kind of in between blue and green. Like the one harder. that I'm looking at in your room right now. <laughs> the, yeah, the one in Dedicator's room. Yeah. Sort of, you know, I'd call it like Azul. an aqua color yeah. or right something like that. But if you don't have that word, it's harder to even recall the color or to recognize it in the future if you don't have a way to label it. And so coming up with some of these labels or silly names for these patterns can help you. It's like, oh, we're doing that thing with the, you know, with the stuff that we do, you know, having a name for it can help you to even recognize it at all, which is kind of cool. And then step five is to fight the pattern, not each other. So now that we've identified some of what's going on, we're understanding maybe where this pattern comes from, and we've worked on interrupting it and naming it, then the the two of us, you know, with all of these steps, the point is that we're coming together to stop this pattern earlier and earlier, right? Maybe at first the best we can do is we can recognize once we're in it, or maybe, okay, let's say we start off, the best we can do is we recognize right after it's happened, oh, whoops, we fell into that pattern again. 
And then let's work together to figure out how we can stop it earlier. Maybe we can recognize it while we're in the middle of it now. And even if we're still upset, it's like, okay, but we, we recognized it. Let's just stop for a moment and then work on recognizing it earlier and earlier to the point where hopefully you get to that point where you're stopping it before you're even going anywhere near it. So then it just becomes a habit to not go down that path of, of negative conflict and instead find other ways to, you know, reconcile those differences more intentionally or in a, a healthier, more loving way. So just, I think that's the big point. And I think this is something that's just huge in relationships is when you can find the way that it's us against a problem Ideally, not us against the world, because that can have some other kind of negative uh, mm. consequences of developing too much of that kind of thinking, but more of this like, hey, look, let's together work to solve this problem, as opposed to you're the problem, I'm fighting you. And if that is where it stays, is you're the problem, I'm fighting you, then maybe that's not a good relationship to stay in, and you want to find one where you can work together against those sorts of problems instead of against each other. Wow. The end of part two. The wow. end of this two-part series on repeating unhealthy relationship patterns. Hope you all learned something out there. It was fun to kind of dive into this and think critically as, as we talked about and maybe go and do some of those journaling exercises and blow our own minds a little bit more. <laughs> Sounds like a fun time. Yeah, definitely let us know if any of you do those. And our question for this week on our Instagram stories is what unhealthy habits do you tend to repeat in your relationships? Yikes. <laughs> definitely <laughs> got a couple of those. So I'm very interested to see what all y'all say. And the best place to share your thoughts with other listeners is on this episode's discussion channel in our Discord server, or you can post in our private Facebook group. You can get access to these groups and join our exclusive community by going to patreon.com slash multiamory. In addition, you can share with us publicly on Twitter, Facebook, or Instagram. Multiamory is created and produced by Jace Lindgren, Dedeker Winston, and me, Emily Matlack. Our episodes are edited by Mauricio Balvanetta. This episode was researched by M. Mays. Our production assistants are Rachel Shenowork and Carson Collins. Our theme song is Forms I Know I Did by Josh and Anand from the Fractal Cave EP. The full transcript is available on this episode's page on multiamory.com. Sick of being upsold at gyms? My guy, you're currently a base member. For $90 more, I can upgrade you to our Shred membership. For $130 more, you'll be a swole member. And for just $300 more, you'll reach Sweat Platinum. At Planet Fitness, you'll get energy without the upsell. Never pushy, always free fitness training and equipment for every workout. It's fitness that fits your budget. Join Planet Fitness for just $1 down and $10 a month. Cancel anytime. Deal ends Friday, May 10th. See Home Club for details.